Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings one, greetings all. Welcome to 100 Words or Less, the podcast, your weekly digest of independent music, punk, hardcore, all the people who are influenced by it, shaped by it, produce it, record it, document it, all of those things combined. And that is what I like about doing this podcast because the longer I've been doing it, so like, you know, I get questions and interviews and, you know, other times where people are like, oh, how long have you been doing it? Like I actually had a phone call last week where a person was like, oh, how long have you been doing it? And I was like, I think seven or eight years, if not longer. And they're like, oh my gosh, like that's a long time. And I'm like, yeah, actually it is a long time. Like I've been doing this as long as like my, my little son has been alive, which is, you know, he's eight years old now, but it's just wild when I reflect on it. But anyways, thank you for joining us. Thank you for downloading, putting this in your ears and supporting the show because, um, you know, if I was doing this and I was getting 10 people paying attention to it, um, it, you know, that, that wouldn't be sustainable, but thousands of you download this every week. And, um, I'm incredibly grateful as we're closing out 2019. I, um, yeah, I just want to make sure that you, the listener know that I appreciate you. I really, really genuinely do. I love it when you email the show, 100 words podcast at gmail.com. And it's just, um, yeah, it continually, brings me such joy that people find different things of value in the show, whether it's like they find a specific interview that's great and that's the only thing they listen to, or if they, you know, download on a weekly basis and just, just love the show. I just really appreciate it. So the guest this week is Ian McFarland. He is from the band blood for blood, who is a great hardcore band from the Boston area, but most notably and most importantly, and I guess, you know, the most recent thing, uh, he is the director of many music videos, but he also just recently directed a film, uh, called the Godfathers of hardcore, which, uh, just recently came out on Blu-ray on uh, bridge nine records. And, uh, it is a, staggering piece of work. I saw it when it debuted on Showtime. I don't know. Gosh, maybe it was over a year ago. It was a, it was a long time ago, but agnostic front, it, you know, clearly a very important band within the context of punk and hardcore. Um, but you know, never spoke to me on deep, deep levels. I enjoyed the band, but just, I never really grasped it in ways that I know other people do, but watching this film just made me um, appreciate them so much more and appreciate the, uh, you know, I was going to call them characters, but no, they're humans, you know, Roger Murray and everybody involved in, you know, Vinny stigma, everybody involved in the agnostic front camp. It specifically focuses on both of them, but the film is unbelievable. And Ian poured so much of his heart and soul and finances and blood and sweat and tears. And uh, his story is incredible. So, and we had a really, really interesting conversation, not only reflecting on that, but then kind of reflecting on a therapy and mental health and a lot of other things. So Ian was a great chat and I'm very excited to, uh, to bring that to you. 
Um, what else do I got to tell you? Well, I'm in New York right now. Uh, hopefully, uh, not freezing too badly, even though I think, uh, I think it, it, it is, it is currently, I'm just looking at the hotel window and it's, uh, oh yeah, that's uh, it's cold, but, and, um, yeah, doing, doing well. And I'm, I'm just excited to, you know, kind of start to wind down the year and be able to chill out and relax with friends and family and all that other stuff. Cause the, the holidays are that, that it's that time, right? Like just, just take a pause. You know, everybody is running around like chickens with their heads cut off. It's like, just, just hold on for a minute. Okay. Let's all appreciate the time that we are in. So that's what, uh, that's what we got this week. So let's hear from Ian. Okay. Let's dive in. And I will talk to you of course, at the end of the episode, right? Like I always do. Okay, here's Ian. You know, I remember, obviously, when we started working together when I was at Century Media Records and you were, um, you know, were and still are a, uh, you know, music video director. And you know, it was one of those things where it's like you were always so professional in your approach and, you know, clearly you knew the music style um, and, you know, you knew what was up. But like, I, I honestly didn't make the connection that you were in Blood for Blood. And then once you shared that with me, I was like, oh, that's rad. Like you obviously get it on a much deeper level than just some random, you know, kid out of high school or whatever uh, or a college. Yeah. Um, right. Do you find it interesting now that you, you know, you've done a lot of different creative things within the context of, you know, film and music and all that stuff that people people have different jumping off points for you where they're like, Oh yeah, I know Ian from blood for blood. And like, wait, he directs music videos. Like, you know, is it, (laughs) is it interesting for you to kind of have these different, um, I guess skins you can put on in a way? Um, yeah, it is. It's, 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 I don't know, just for people to say anything about me or anything like that is, is always fascinating to me because I don't look at myself as anybody different than anybody else that on the street or does anything else in art or anything like that. I just, I, I focus on things differently. But when someone says something to to um, the effect of, of um, <laughs> I remember from this or that, I don't know. I kind of take a step back sometimes and go like, yeah, I, yeah, I did that. Or, yeah, it's like, you know, I'm 40 years old. So it's like, you know, you think about stuff you've done in your past and um, it's, you, I don't know, it makes you reflect a little bit. These days I just do a lot of reflection and hope for growth and understanding of my uh, my path and my life. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes it takes people to say things like that to do that. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm sure too, I'm sure there's instances in which, uh, one, you know, one side of your life benefits the other side of your life or, you know, vice versa where you're like, well, you know, I'll, I'll keep that under wraps. Like I don't need to obviously advertise it. Not like people would think negatively of me, but you know, I don't need to necessarily say that I was in a band called blood for blood or that I was, you know, like, do you, do you find that happening too? I, I, you know what, man, it's, it's actually, like um there's i'm very proud of being in that band i'm very proud of what we accomplished um that's blood for blood that's my time with blood for blood that's something that i'm still part of to this day um you know it's just me and rob now um but you know we're not we're not doing anything in the moment but um i don't it's it's part of me it's part of my history um but it's not really that much part of my film career um, but it does cross over once in a while, especially when I'm working with artists that know my band or, you know, people that I've known for a very long time, you know, from playing in blood for blood in the scene. And now they're in a really big band, you know? So it's like, you get a lot of that. I'm sure you get that a lot too. You know, I mean, there's the, you knowing people from if you're in the music business. There's no way 
that you've been in the industry and you've had a couple friends that haven't like hit it, you know what I mean? And then it's just that like much bigger deal. So it's like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, I don't know, you, you, um, I don't, I don't advertise that I'm in blood for blood. I'm very proud of it, but I, I, filmmaking is my career and what I do. Blood for blood was what I did. And I will always do if there's an opportunity for it. But right now filmmaking is what I do. Yeah. No, you know to- what I mean? Totally. Well, and plus too, I, I think it's those things that the creative pursuits, regardless of what medium you are working in, show that there is this kind of, you know, lineage and through line of your experiences where it's like, Oh yeah. You know, hundred percent, hundred percent, man. I know like Rob and I, it's funny. Cause like Rob and I over the years have talked many times about just doing a couple of short films together that we have or right together. And, you know, I don't think that him and I would ever talk about that if we hadn't had shared experiences with being a blood for blood, you know, and all those years on the road, because some of the things we talked about doing as films and whatnot were, you know, uh, were based on stories or things that we remember. It was just too crazy to tell people. It's just easier to put in a film because people might believe it then, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't know. I hope I answered it a little bit, but yeah, I I don't know. Yeah. Oh no, no, for sure. Cause like you said, yeah, there, (laughs) especially too, when you get attracted to a subculture, usually that subculture breeds other, other weirdo interests where it's like, you know, yeah, you get into, you know, underground film or whatever. And like, Mm -hmm. because you're into underground art from a music perspective. And so, yeah, you just kind of start to, you know, attract other people that are interested in that. Um, and then, like you said, you start to pull on those influences where it's just like, wait, do you, you like this weird French cinema too? Like I like it too, you know? <laughs> well, I can tell you this, man, like, um, you know, as my career has kind of gone in the direction it's, it's gone and I've been connected with, you know, you know, maybe higher level people in the industry, especially the film industry. It's, you know, always, it's always amazes me that, you know, I'll be talking to somebody that's like, I'm, I sit there going, wow, I can't believe I'm talking to this person at this major film company and we're talking about this project and maybe doing this. And then somehow it comes up that, you know, this guy, you know, grew up in New York around this time. And he's like, yeah, man, seeing your movie, like, you know, brought me back to that time. And I was like, holy crap, you know, you'd be surprised at how many uh, people in the music industry, you know, from hardcore punk rock have now infiltrated the, uh, <laughs> the, the film industry and the entertainment industry in so many different ways. I'm sure you can relate with that and understand that oh absolutely i I just think it's you know people because i I think i I reflect on that often where now that this subculture has existed for you know 30 plus years that people that got into it when they were you know in their junior high early teenage years are now adults and you know trying to change the world in whatever capacity whether it's you know corporate structure whether it's you know arts like they're influencing it because they're still they still view the world in this sort of diy principle that they were raised with you know like you can't shed that like some people do and you know that's fine but people like you and i definitely always view the world through that and it's impossible to not influence the world around you because of you viewing absolutely yeah absolutely and then it's interesting too because you know you'd hope that some people would have, you know, you know, stronger morals in some areas and learning from, you know, a a culture of, of, you know, people that are in parkour punk rock, because I mean, there's a lot of just really amazing people in that music, you know, I wouldn't even call it music culture. It's just a culture of like, you know, different thinking and, and, you know, some of this is also, there's some real, horrible people too, <laughs> you know, they go yep. to extremes in other ways. I mean, there's, there's good and bad in both areas, but the people that are, 
you know, that I try to associate with at least, you know, trying to do something in, in a positive manner. Um, and most of the people that I know these days have at least learned from their mistakes and are trying to, like you said, you know, be in a better, better place and influence the world in a, a, a better way. And it's, it's interesting to see those people and where they land in careers I mean, look at, you know, Justin from, from Most Precious Blood. I mean, look at him. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> I mean, politics. that's a perfect yeah. example. I mean, he's, he, that guy is like, you know, he's, he's doing some great stuff for his community, that area. He's like making a difference in his little mark. I mean, there's so, I could list so many people that are doing stuff like that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to see, um, uh, to, to see, because it is, it's right about the age where a lot of people from that, um, error are now in places of um, senior positions, and you know some people that, that you know started out as you know this type of you know maybe doing a zine in the you know eighties or maybe they're not, they're not big editors of big magazines. It's like you know, and, and but they always have that little background that they can always like lean back on and say, no, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do this. I have you know I have these stronger morals, and that's not that's not right. You know what I mean? So. I hope that I hope that people will look that way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, for for sure, for sure. Um, kind of, you know, putting the focus on you. Were you, um, you know, as just like sort of simple biographical information? Because there were certain things that I was just like, I don't know this, so I don't think it's actively out there. Um, you know, were you born and raised in the East Coast? I'm going to presume that. Yeah, I was. I was born and raised in Maine. Got it. In, in the yeah. Portland, Maine area, or some other place. North of that, I grew up in a town with 1,100 people in it. Oh wow, that's small. Um, tiny, tiny little town at the time it was 1,100. I don't know what it is now, but I remember it was 1,100 people. Um, and it was a place called Bodenham. I went to a tiny little, you know, elementary school and high school, and but I always, uh, you know, gravitated towards going to Portland. That was like the biggest city close to me, and you know, whenever there was a like a, uh, like a metal or a hardcore show. Um, when I started learning about hardcore, I got into metal first. Um, but then I kind of slowly started hearing about this thing, hardcore and punk rock. And it was just, wow, this is pretty cool. There wasn't a lot of the shows up in Maine, but when there were, I would, I would see them and, uh, <laughs> go to them. I would do anything I could to go to them. Or, and then eventually when I was a teenager, I started putting them on, you know? So rockabilia.com is the only place that you should be looking for your holiday presents in regards to band merch. Like you better do it right now because let's be honest, it's like less than two weeks before Christmas. Get on it. Okay. You can use this code PC 100 words. That's the number one zero zero words. And you'll be able to get 15% off your order. They are an unbelievable company, all officially licensed stuff. They have everything you could possibly shake a stick at from getting your dad a cool, you know, band shirt to getting your brother or sister a cool sweater or long sleeve or whatever it is that they are into. They have Rockabilly has half a million items, fast shipping, great customer service, just top to bottom a very professional and well-oiled machine when it comes to that stuff. I just love them so much. You could you could have maybe last week or the week before, I can't remember exactly, we had a discussion with uh, Frankie, one of the co-owners, and it was a uh, illuminating conversation. But go to rockabilly.com, use the code PC100Words, and you will get 15% off your order. There's no better place to go to buy band merch and buy your holiday presents, okay? So there it is, rockabilly.com, the best place for band merch. And what was your uh, family structure like? Like brothers and sisters, mom and dad in the house? Oh, yeah. yeah I grew up with my mom and dad up in Maine. Um, they still live up there. Um, I have one brother. Uh, he's a, uh, my mother's a nurse. My father's a, uh, a, a, a fine furniture maker. Um, right now he's doing a lot of wood carving. And my brother's a phenomenal, just absolutely 
insane um, woodworker, like just does amazing work. He actually built my kitchen in my house for a wedding present. Oh, um, yeah. amazing. Yeah. So I have like an insane looking, beautiful kitchen. Um, that was done by my family. So that's really cool. And then yeah. obviously, obviously you did not pick up the, uh, the woodworking business as it were. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, definitely not. I wish I, to me, sometimes I wish I had, <laughs> maybe I would have been a little more relaxed. Um, and maybe I could shut off the world a little bit more, but, um, no, I, I didn't go that path. Sure. Did you ever, I guess, try it or was it just like, nah, I, I can't even figure out what that means. I did. I did. Um, I did for quite a while. Like I still, I mean, I do stuff around my house, but, um, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really get into that, that, that much. Um, it's funny, my brother and father are really trying to get me into, uh, buying a lathe and, uh, they've really been for the last few years, like, uh, starting this business where they, they're making custom, beautiful, uh, bowls. Um, and uh, plates and stuff like that. So they're trying to get me to that. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> they're like, they, they say you need something, you know, uh, your, your, your job is your lifestyle. It's like you, 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 you have, you, you've gone from being music and what you surround yourself with and make money from and entrench yourself into doing the same thing now with film. It's like, you need an outlet and they're trying to get me to have something a little bit more calm and relaxing. I can do it on my own. <laughs> right. <So. laughs> yeah. No, that's, uh, and it's funny. I'm like, too. Fuck that. I got to listen to my own thoughts. <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Well, cause I mean, they're trying to pull you back into the, it's like, Hey man, what you, you, I know you make stuff with your hands, but like it's not yeah. the same as what we <laughs> Yeah. Do. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I just, uh, I, I guess it's, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could, I can, I could, I'd like to have the time to be able to do that, to be honest with you. I'd like to have the time to have a hobby, but I'm just boss to the wall, like nonstop. Yeah, sure. I totally understand. Seven days a week, like yep. literally 15 hours a day, every day, because I do a lot of commercial work. Yeah. Um, more than just like, you know, regular, you know, um, you know filmmaking and whatnot. It's, it's all the same thing, but I'm saying, you know, commercial filmmaking. So Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you've always struck me as a person, you know, getting to know you over the years, like you were, um, you know, cause p- people automatically assume that, you know, because you are, you know, whatever in the Boston area, like that you m- must have that uh, adoption of the, you know, the very aggressive, you know, Boston lifestyle and that sort of stuff. And like, you've always struck me as a dude who, um, you know, is pretty, uh, soft-spoken, but not, um, not in the way that's like, you know, you're this like very, you know, weak-willed, meek individual or whatever, um, but, you know, have, have you always kind of been that person sort of navigating through the world or was that something that, uh, just kind of developed over time for you? Whoa. I know Jeez, that's a lot. Dude, there. You, I apologize. Whoa, you just punched me in the face, dude. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, um, I, I don't really, uh, I've never been a tough guy or anything like that. Um, I'm not a pushover by any means, sure. but, um, I don't know. Um, I, I, I've always been kind of, um, when I was younger, I was definitely, um, not like I was when I was in my thirties. I think my thirties, um, I kind of, you know, changed quite a bit. Um, and I'm not sure what happened. Um, but a bunch of things happened with me, um, in my head. And, uh, I just kind of, I don't like the word morphed. Um, but it's the only way to explain it. Like I kind of, I really changed, um, I think I just became a part of my life where I didn't like the way I was, you know, being talked to or viewed or anything in my life. And I really looked at it pretty hard. Um, I didn't like some of the, 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 the way people were acting around me. Um, and I just kind of like changed. I had a reset in my head, you know, um, at least I tried to, 
you know, um, and then, um, did some, my late thirties, um, really did some major self-reflection and that's when I kind of feel like I really kind of, uh, changed into the next phase of my existence on this planet. Um, you know? Yeah, no, that's really, um, I mean, not only is that insightful and inspiring because so many people feel like they, you know, once you kind of, especially too, once you are in the creative fields that, you know, there's different ways that you can reinvent yourself artistically, but a lot of people don't, you know, do the self-reflection where it's like, oh, like I can do that for myself as well. Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's a lot of people don't self-reflect because that's one of the hardest things you can do is look at the ugly parts of yourself. Like it's easy to point fingers at other people. It's easy to deflect all the time. It's easy to it's easy to you know tell somebody you know you did this or, but it's really hard to actually look inside yourself and be like, well, okay, that's all fine and dandy, and that, but how did I contribute to that? And what brought me to that that point to be in that situation? And um, that's what I kind of did. And I really kind of had to just look at myself um, on many different levels. Um, what, you know, how I was treating myself, how I was treating other people. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't realize a lot, it's funny a lot because I don't put it online. I don't like make it a thing, but you know, I have two children and I have, you know, my wife and I have been together for 20 years. So, you know, it's, you know, you, you, I have a life where, you know, we be, you, when you take that path in life, if you're not doing that, I think that you're just not being, the best you can be for your kids. I mean, you have to do that, right? It's like, it's, I don't know if you have kids or not, but uh, do you have kids? I do. Yeah. yeah I have eight year old. There you go. So it's like, you, you, you have to, you really gotta like, you gotta look at yourself and be like, I wonder, I wonder what I could do better than what was, you know, done to me or, or you know what I mean? Like, dude, uh, you know you, what I'm saying? No, I, I, it's, I mean, you know, the, this is very topical. I mean, I myself have been going through, you know, a, a lot of, uh, stresses recently and like, you know, just started, I've never had a problem with therapy myself, but like, you know, uh, cause I, I've done like family therapy with my wife before or whatever, but like mm-hmm. now doing therapy on myself. So everything that you were talking about, like it literally gives me goosebumps because there are things where it's just like, you know, you know, your life, you know, your narrative, you know, the things that you have been through, but then when you actually go back and examine these, you know, things that you, you know, whatever, like for example, myself, like I come from a family of divorce and my parents, you know, split at age four. And like, I know that. And I, my life has been relatively good, um, because of this, this division and divorce. But like you said, once you actually start to reflect on like, oh crap, that did a number on me or like, oh, that did, you know, uh, fundamentally change who I was. And so I, I, I know exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. It sometimes it takes a trigger too, you know, to, to totally, you know, when you have, you know, there was a, a period of my life, um, from the time we see it was like 2000 and probably 2000 and, um, I would say like nine, um, to no, it was more like 2008, 2008 to like 2012. Um, it was probably the first hardest part of my life that, because it was dealing with stuff that I had never really thought about, um, or, uh, addressed from years prior in my life. And that's, and then, and then you, when you don't know how to handle that, you kind of go into this weird state and then, oh, I remember all this shit. I'm not going to get into it fully, but like a lot of things all, I can't believe how many things happened all at once. Um, which kind of forced me to kind of, um, really kind of 
because I wasn't dealing with them well. So, you know, forced me to look at them and then look at myself and why can't I deal with these, this, you know, like a normal person. And then that's what kind of triggered things to me to start saying, I need to really figure out why I'm reacting this way to this, just things that happen in life. You can't control. Um, so it makes you really think about it, you know, like, what is it? The, why is the reason that this is, why do I feel this way when other people can literally just brush it off and then it takes you to go and try to figure it out. And that's when it gets hard. Because then, then you got to really go. Oh shit! This again. Yeah. I haven't told you. <laughs> Damn it! Like it's like, why did I do this? It's like, like why did I make myself think about this? Fuck. Yeah. And you know, and then you're like, then then you're in. Then you're like, you're you're all in. Then forget yeah. it. Now you got to deal with it. Totally. It's like then it's then your mind all day long. <laughs> yep. Then it's so, yeah. Then it's the onion you're peeling away. No, I I, I mean I, I appreciate you communicating this because I, I think that you know there are uh, you know people of all different ages that go through these sort of um, you know mental health trials and tribulations and like you said the there you can be going along fine and then all of a sudden yeah <laughs> the tr- the trigger happens and then you're just like oh oh okay this is something that I have to deal with yeah but yeah and and you know the other thing you know it's interesting how it happens in stages sometimes. Like I swear the last 10 years have been the most growth I've ever done as a human being on this planet. And it was like, they came in spurts and the last like major one was making this film and what I went through to do it. Um, because it was not just do a film and put it together and put it out. Move along. Yeah. Yeah. Move along. No way. I mean, the shit I went through on this movie was, (laughs) I never, I didn't think, like I usually plan things out really well because I do production for a living. But what I, you know, I, 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 I'm really focused on making this movie look, look really great and, you know, do the, make it the best as possible for what I had access to and then try to make it even better. Um, but <laughs> what I didn't prepare for was the, everything that came along with that which was the pressure, which was the, the, the stress, the, and it, it's not that I didn't think about, Oh, this is going to be stressful. It's going to be hard. I knew that. But what I didn't anticipate was how it actually affects you mentally and physically over a long period of time. And it being constant. Um, it beat me down. Like I, it took me months to recover after I kind of put it out and it, it was, it was, I got really sick actually. Um, I got, I got extremely sick. Um, I was, I had, thank God, man, I'm from when I delivered the film to Showtime, um, it was like my body just gave out. I gave everything I could and I got fucking like, I don't know, four months worth of bronchitis, pneumonia. Like it was, it was like my body was depleted of everything I had, (laughs) um, because, you know, the, between the amount of like, you know, the stress of putting something like that together, by the time I was done, most of the people that were working on it had fall, kind of fallen away. Um, and it was just myself and I wasn't stopping. I was like, I was doing everything, um, everything from the legal, you know, clearances to, you know, delivering the film to different entities and networks and whatnot, which is really difficult to do if you don't, you know, if, if you're not from my world. Um, it's still even hard for somebody like me. Um, and then, you know, that, and then the amount of, you know, money that this thing took to do. So it's, you know, and it's in, and it's not like I got bought by a distributor or, uh, you know, I, I decided to own this sucker and 
because I didn't want someone to turn it into something else or I, and I didn't want it to sit on a shelf with nobody was going to see it because it, you know, was something they didn't understand how to market. Um, and I would rather sit on my shelf and if it's going to sit on a shelf, I mean, fucking sit on mine, but like, <laughs> I don't want to sit on somebody else's and then yeah. we never have a chance of getting a payback, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, it's, it, but it's interesting about how, you react to stressful situations, you know, the older you get and you grow as a person. Um, because it, I think it forces you to address things that maybe you left behind, you know? Yeah. Right. Because you, cause you didn't have time to process it or you just didn't, yeah, yeah you didn't have the emotional intelligence to, but you know, totally. And I, I mean, I think you're, you know, I'll, I'll jump ahead, but then I'll jump back a little bit because I was going to, you know, ask you a specific question in regards to, you know, you taking on this project that, you know, the Godfathers of hardcore, because, I, you know, I remember when I watched it on, on Showtime streaming and, you know, because I, I, I knew you obviously, and you know, agnostic front was, you know, frankly, just being from the West coast, like obviously he was aware of the band. It was an important band to me, but not in the way that other people hold agnostic front up, but I was still so committed to the story and loved the film. And honestly, it was one of those things where I was like, this, you know, not only is this Ian's love letter to to the band and to yourself and kind of in Trent being like, hey, this is like the hardcore experience, you know, in a nutshell, um, you know, but obviously also paying respect to the legacy of the band. Um, it, it, to me, it felt like you made the film from a perspective of I am the uh, and this is going to sound egotistical, but uh, I assure you it's not. I am the only person that can tell this story. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think other people could have told it, but man, nobody could have told it like the way I did. Sure. Like, so I, I, I'll, I'll say that. Like, many people could have told the story. There's many capable people, but I don't think anybody would have done it the way I did it. Um, maybe a little bit, but it, I, I definitely 100% put my stink on this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it, it, it was. It, it wasn't. And the other thing too, it wasn't, it wasn't so much my love letter. Um, if it was my story, um, it would be my love letter, but I, it, it, it was written by Roger and Vinny, like their love letter, their lives are their love letter to the scene. Sure. And I just happened to capture it and, and arrange it in a way that was appealing to, you know, the, the scene we come from, the people that like, you know, hardcore punk rock and, or just people that just want to see an interesting story about two guys that, you know, love what they do and love each other. And they've gone through hell. Like in a lot of ways, so it's when I say if I was to say it was my love letter, um, I think it would uh, I would be biased in a way because it's it's really not my my story. Um, no, I yeah. You know what I mean? No, I I, to- I totally understand. I, I think it's because um, yes, obviously, it clearly is their story and the way that you know it's all laid out from you know almost start to finish per se. Um, but the um, I think the lens that it is viewed from is still. Um, paying, you know, not only homage and respect to the band and their journey, but just like the the snapshot of this particular scene, you know? Because yes, hundred percent. That part, yes. Like yeah. I, I, while I was doing it, um, I, I was I would try. That was the hardest part. I would try to explain it to people. Like, and and before I would see the thing is, I tried to make this thing for like ten years, man, and no one would give me any money. <laughs> I'm not going to call anybody out and embarrass these people, but there was at least 10 people that I went to that could have funded this 10 times over. (laughs) And, and they just said three or four of them said, you know, that's never going to sell. 
you're never going to sell a film about agnostic front. And I'm just like, okay, all right, moving on. Don't get it. (laughs) Like, I don't know how much more clear I can be. Like, look at, it's not going to be what you think it is. It's like, listen to this. I mean, if you read the treatments that I did for this thing to show people, you'd be like, yep, he did it. It's exactly what he said he was going to do. But no one could really just get their head wrapped around it. Every single person, every single label, and every single investor I talked to turned me down. And I decided, I was like, well, let's just do it. And I'll figure a way out. And yeah, and then the rest is history. So right, right. <laughs> I definitely, for sure... I, Definitely a couple of those people that turned me down definitely congratulated me when they announced it was on Showtime and they were like, I'm kicking myself in the ass right now. And <laughs> and I my response to them was good. Good. That's the <laughs> good. Point. Yeah. Good. But uh, we're friends, but it's just like, you know, yeah. it's like a yeah, you I mean, come on. Like Yeah, totally. Now they ask me like, what do you do next? What do you do now? What do you do now? Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You're like, like Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, come on. I mean, it's I understand. I mean, I, I don't know if I would have banked on a band like you know agnostic front as much as i like the band and i like the music i don't know if i would have sank money into something like that um either <laughs> to be honest with you if, if i wanted to make money back or make money yeah um no. it's a hard thing to explain it's a hard thing to explain um you know your vision um i still to this day i always have a hard time with treatments but you know it's something i've worked on for a while finally i have a couple films right now that i'm, I'm pitching that i feel i've finally gotten you know, my, my, uh, my voice across. Um, and I think it's because I did this movie too. Uh, help me, help me do that. It's a perfect experience. Yeah. 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 Um, kind of, kind of jumping back because, you know, I, I want to, to trace the idea of like, you know, when you started to, um, I presume blood for blood was obviously not your first band or was it your first band? My first real band. I mean, I played in like, you know, small little, like, you know, high school bands and things like that with friends, Sure. but it was my first real band, um, that I was, you know, a member of that I felt a hundred percent part of. As always, this episode is brought to you by Sonos because let's be honest, Sonos is probably one of the best gifts you can get your friends, family, whoever it is you care about, because they are the best speakers around seamless integration to whatever room you are talking about. You could have system set up all over the house, streaming the exact same Christmas carol as you're having your holiday party. Or it's like, you know what? Let's have a Hawaiian Christmas party in this room. And then let's have, you know, traditional Christmas carol playing in this room. It's so, so incredible what they have. And it can sync up to your Wi-Fi in less than 10 minutes because you can have it up and running open it on Christmas morning and be like, oh, okay, let's, let's do this. Oh, let's stream our favorite music to this brand new Sono speaker that you got me. And oh my gosh, even my grandmother can ha- make this happen. Sonos is the best company. I, I constantly advocate for them because uh, I just think that they are really, really good at what they do and make sure that the sound quality and the integration with all of your music listening experiences just go through without a hitch. So go to Sonos.com, check out their full line of products because you will be able to find a Christmas present for everybody on your list on there. And you can look like the coolest person at whatever holiday party or gathering you are showing up to. So visit Sonos.com and learn more. And I love you, Sonos. Yeah. I was just gonna say, how did you get down to, to Boston and like basically, you know, kind of come into that world? I used to go to hardcore shows all the time down in Boston. Um, and because it wasn't like the bands that I really liked, I mean, they wouldn't go as far as Maine. And when they did, it was either from a promoter that 
was doing shows before I started doing them. And then I started doing shows as a teenager and I started bringing those bands that I liked up to, to Maine to Portland. I started renting out clubs and then bringing them up at like, I was 16, 17 years old right. and I was doing, you know, in Legion halls and small clubs I would rent out. I would actually get all my friends, um, that had some stable jobs at like 16, 17 years old to put up the money for me and they all got a piece of the show did well <laughs> nice so so it's 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 funny because now i do it with films. i was about to say yeah <laughs> you do the same exact thing yeah yeah you're just yeah, getting a little more money <laughs> yeah i just i've never had a job this is all i've done i'm not a scammer i'm not a hustler or anything i'm just like hey i'm gonna do this do you want to do it with me because i'd really rather do it with my friends than than people that i don't know and yeah. i promise you i will you know lay on a blade before you know we get screwed like <laughs> So yeah, I kind of did it when I was, when I was a teenager and, and, uh, then it just kind of morphed into what I do now, essentially. Sure. Sure. And did you, you know, the idea of like playing in a band, I mean, like you said, you, you know, you kind of gigged around and then, you know, once you, you started to go out on tour with blood for blood and started to kind of experience that, um, was being in a band kind of like all that you, uh, sort of thought it was going to be like, did you enjoy touring? Did you enjoy kind of the business aspect of, you know, signing to record labels and doing all that sort of stuff? How was your kind of, I guess, overall feelings as you started to do that? Hmm, that's a loaded question. It's an emotional one too. Um, cause you go in so many different directions. I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I touring. I don't know. It was there's a, a couple different things. Like one, I was when I joined Blood for Blood. I was 20 years old. I was I, I just turned 19 years old. I'm 20 years old. I believe I was. I believe I was like 19 when I tried out, and then I was 20 when I joined. Yeah, I was 19. I was 20 when I joined because, yeah, I, that's right. Because I remember my 21st birthday. Um, we were heading back on tour. Yeah, so like I was like it was very young. Uh, I was the youngest one by most of the guys in the band. All the guys had at least like four or five years on me, which was significant enough. Um, I think at that age. Yep. Um, and you know, touring with the band when I joined, I actually joined, uh, let me see. It would have been, I think, I think it was August of 97 and uh, it was 97, 98. I got to look, I can't remember. Um, and then we recorded, we like literally right after I joined, literally right after we got signed to, to victory. Um, and then right after we recorded the first to, uh, revenge of society, um, I immediately went on tour for almost like three months with the bruisers and blood for blood in Europe. Um, that's a lot. Dude, <laughs> I, you were thrown in. Day, yeah. To this day, Every single one of those guys on that tour, I look at all of them as close family. Like, I can't even tell you the shit that went down on that tour. Like, it was, I'm sure as hell not going to say it on a fucking podcast. No, no, no. Um, but, like, in, yeah, it was long. It was very hard and very long, and nobody knew us in Europe. And um, the bruisers were like, you know, respected band but they weren't huge but they still you know they they could headline and we could do punk clubs and do some great ones and some really small clubs but yes it was very 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 long um and then you know once i started it's interesting because i've always i've said this to people that all i wanted to do when i was a kid um it wasn't i didn't want to be a director i wasn't i i liked filmmaking because i would 
I would make VHS tape little things. I would do two VCRs and make little videos and things like that. And then I bought a camera when I was a little bit a teenager and like that. But it wasn't, it was just a hobby. It was my only hobby I had. Music was my thing. And playing in bands was my thing. That's all I want to do. I couldn't think of any other thing to do. Like my parents, when I was a kid, they, they started, they told me they all oh, from my, from elementary school and high school, they always told me they have this college fund for me. And I was like, oh, well, sweet. I was like, cool. And I was like, when I was a teenager, I was home. I was like, I'm not going to college. And they were like, what? You have to go to college. Well, I'm not going. And they're like, I was like, I'm going to do this music thing. They're like, oh, you know, trying to convince me. I don't I said, so that money you got in that account for me. I was like, I want to buy a van with it. And I want to tour. And they were like, oh, you can't do that. Come on, Ian. Like, and I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm old enough to do this. You know, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not going to school. And, you know, they gave me the money. Um, and it was like really, really small amount of money. <laughs> I, did, they, I don't think they realized it didn't grow much at all, but I did. I bought a van. Um, and all I could focus on was playing music. And all I could focus on was all I wanted to be was in a band that did something. And I didn't know what it was yet, but it just did something. And my vision of that was playing on stage and lots of people being there. Some people would call that a rock star. Some people call that successful. Some people would call that just um, doing what you love to do. Um, for me, I just had a vision of people watching us play. And then it kind of changed a little bit as I got older. Like, oh, I want to play bigger shows. I want to be recognized. Of course, there's a little bit of ego in there. Anybody that's a musician gets on stage, you know, musician and gets on stage and they say they don't have an ego. They're lying just a little bit. You, right. ha- you have, you have to have a little bit of ego to do what you do. But I remember, you know, it's funny, but I remember when the last time that we toured is when it really hit me. Because when I was a kid, you know, we, I toured the country many times and, you know, shitty vans and, you know, this band and that band. And, um, you know, then when we were a little bit older, we had the luxury of like being on a bus one time, you know, sharing a, sharing a bus. And, you know, but most of the time it was van stuff up until like 2004. 2000, we stopped playing for, you know, six, seven years. And we never broke up. We just stopped playing. Um, Rob kind of went off on his own way and, and, and got involved in some stuff that he's still fighting, you know, to this day. But like, uh, what it, it did was it, it, when we started playing again in like 2010, I remember being on stage and now we had a bus. Now we had like five people that were working for us on the road. We were playing, selling out all these clubs and then we're playing huge festivals. And I remember being on stage one specific night and going, holy shit, that's the crowd that I had in my head. This is the club, the way it looks. And I had this like, like revelation, like I, I made it. And it wasn't like the idea of being like, like, I hate the word rock star. I, I don't consider myself even close to something like that. But when you, you, it's the closest thing that people would say that don't know music because people in hardcore punk rock are not rock stars. Totally. They're like, but I, I had this vision. It exceeded of like, your expectation. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember standing there just going, holy crap, I just like, and I had a lump in my throat and I was just like, holy crap, I did it. If something happened to me right now, I guess I did what I wanted to do. And, um, after that, um, I was just like, everything changed for me. It was just like, this is, I love, I, I love what I do. It's just so much fun to, and then the part when you, if you're in a band that actually affects people, um, it's even cooler. Yeah. You know? It's even deeper. You know? Right. It's totally. even way deeper. And you have a responsibility then too. Right. Um, 
and, and the, th- the thing that I always found funny about you too is the fact that you know I mean most people look at, at Blood for Blood and uh, you know it clearly has a very specific uh, not only taste musically but it's just like oh yeah like you know party tough guy band or whatever and like clearly uh, you know self-identified as not a tough guy but I'm sure that many people you know would be quote unquote intimidated by it's like whoa dude Ian like blood for blood like you know <laughs> I don't know I don't know if people uh, like actively have expressed that to you where it's just like oh know. no yeah, yeah if they did I, I wouldn't I, I don't pay attention to it because I'm not that's not who I am but totally like, yeah I I, I uh I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't think with that. I think one thing that we always did have a problem with is people labeled us and they didn't really know us. Yep. Because you know, people. One of the things that really bothered me, and I know it made Rob fucking fuming. He would he would scream if he saw this in a zine uh-huh. or. Remember when it was like called Hatecore? Oh yes, of course. You know what I mean? Yep. And like, and we're like, no, we're a fucking punk rock band. It's just you, that's all we're a street punk band. We're like a punk rock street rock rock and roll hardcore. That's what we do. And why do we have to label it so you can get it? We're just blood for blood. We're different, and it really, really bothers. But we were the band in my eyes. Is we're the band of of pain. I mean, I think that we express pain. Because pain comes in many different ways, you know. It's it's you know some have an outlet uh, need to use it as an outlet for anger and 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 you, you use the scene as anger and, and you know animosity and others just want to be around other people that can feel the same type of pain that they feel or same shared experience. And I can think that a lot of I think a lot of bands do that, but I think that I think the Blood for Blood maybe did it just a little bit different than some other bands because. Um, I think that specifically a lot of the lyrics and the musical arrangement really struck a chord with a lot of people mm-hmm. um, in yeah. a lot of ways. And I'm proud to be part of that. Totally. Totally. Um, and you know, something I always found interesting uh, once I got kind of a peek behind the curtain in regards to like, you know, the music video hustle, um, like it, it honestly, people do not uh, consider the amount of work. And, and I know this is like, sort of blowing smoke up your butt, but like just the amount of work it takes to put together a music video and for, you know, the budgets that, you know, you and many people were working with in the early to mid two thousands for a lot of these music videos was infinitesimal, you know, it was like, you know, Hey, can you put this together for five grand? And it's like, well, yeah. yeah. Um, and so it, it just kind of, um, I don't know. It just really made me appreciate that, uh, medium that much more because a lot of people, you know, even though we live in a visual society, um, and obviously YouTube has, you know, made the proliferation of music videos more important than ever, than even when, you know, MTV was, was powerful. Um, it still gets short shrift and people just are like, Oh yeah, whatever music video band playing in a warehouse. And even then like, that's still hard to do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like I got into doing music videos right when the music industry decided that they didn't want to pay for them anymore. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, fucking right. Like, shit. And you know what was really hard about that? And, you know, you work in the Century Media. Or you were Abacus then, right? It was, it was Abacus. Yeah, was same, yeah, yes. yeah, same, yeah same, same difference, but yes. Yeah, it was, it was Abacus. And like, um, um, that's right, yeah, you guys you just signed a couple bands, friends of mine. Um, I, I remember that, that, when we first started doing music videos, it was, it was, I was excited because I was starting to work with bands that I liked and I had connections with, and I was getting asked to write on really big bands, 
Um, and that was exciting because I was flattered and I was like, man, I'm, I'm writing on music videos for like Ozzy Osbourne and like, you know, Devo <laughs> and like, like just huge artists. And it was exciting. But the flip side of that is when the music industry decided that it wasn't going to pay for music videos anymore. And the year that it lost 70% of sales that reflected on everything, as you know, with, you know, music videos being probably the first thing on the chopping block. And the budgets went, so like some of these budgets that the year before we had written on that were like, say, uh, you know, $200,000 that year would drop down to like 20 and yet they still expect the same level of quality. Um, and they don't understand why, you know, it's very difficult to do that type of stuff. Totally. Um, it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a lot of work. So the way that, um, you know, my business part at the time and I, you know, you know, combated that was we would try to figure out, you know, the budget. Cause a lot of the time the labels would ask you for a song, either give you a song and say, this is what the band's thinking. Here, what's your idea before you tell them that, before they tell you what they'll spend on it. So you'd have all these like inexperienced film directors that would write these crazy ass insane treatments. The band would get sold on it. The manager loves it. The label's like, let's go. And then they hand over like literally the catering budget on what the budget the music video used to be. <laughs> yeah, totally. And they say, could you yeah, have fun and listen, here's a contract. We own everything and you're, you got to do it. So they, all these music video directors get locked into it and they, but yet they get to work with some amazing artists and it's going to help their career. And there is definitely truth in that. But when you constantly get asked over and over again to do that, it kind of takes any excitement out of it because you start feeling used. And, you know, I, Luckily, you know, really kind of decided, you know, I was, I was, I was problematic with it, you know, and, and figured out what, um, you know, what was the best way of going about, you know, dealing with budgets that low. So what we would do is we would convince, you know, labels and whatnot to give us the amount of money they would want to spend on. And then we would write backwards. We could say, okay, we have this much. What can we do for this? And we'd start going that way. And then we started seeing like a lot of labels would do that for other people. And it kind of, now it's kind of the norm because the budgets are so low. So if you're doing music videos, you're not doing it to make money. You need to make something, but you're not making like it wasn't like the nineties. Like some of these directors that I know that were doing stuff in the nineties. I'm like, yeah, like 80 grand, right? Totally. (laughs) Dude. Like, like I, dude, I know a couple directors that, um, I know for a fact, like one in particular, I know would walk with like 50, 60, 70,000 profit from a music video. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And it's ridiculous. And like, and, and I'm just like, holy crap. Like those, and those are the budgets now for most, you know, that's a huge budget for, for most, you know, bands in, in indie world or, you know, somewhat mainstream. That's still really, that's a, that's a, that's a, a good budget. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's a ma- That's a major label. Like, yeah, yeah. you're going to be doing like maybe a multiple day shoot or whatever. So yeah, it's- I've been lucky. I, I've been lucky enough to like, you know, I, I do, I tend to do a lot of videos with the same band. I keep getting, they ask me to come back and we do more. Like I've had a longstanding relationship with like kill switch engage like that. Um, yep. They're like a great example. I've done a lot of videos for them and it's just, it's like one of those things where we have a great time together and there's a camaraderie and we collaborate and, and they luckily do have pretty good budgets, um, especially in today and especially in the metal world. Um, and, um, I think because they sell records and they really own their own, you know, 
brand and their everything. They own everything. It's really remarkable their business model. They're, they're, you want to talk about something interesting? Have the the managers on. That's really something cool. Oh yeah, they're they're one. Yeah, yeah they're one of yeah, the few. Kenny that, and, yeah, yeah, they know what they're doing, and yeah. it's really cool. Abs- um, no, totally, totally. Kenny and yeah, Kenny Bourne and Vaughn Lewis, those strong management. Those guys know their shit. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Soundrink.com is a proud supporter of this show, and I'm extremely excited that they're supporting the show because basically they offer up the best VIP ticket experiences that you could possibly imagine because, you know, you see VIP P packages that exist out there. And, you know, sometimes you're kind of like, oh, that's, I don't know, that's a little expensive or like, I don't know, that doesn't really seem to fit in with the band. Soundrink does not jive with that. They work hand in hand with bands, management, record labels to make sure that these experiences that bands are doing on their tours are reflective of who they are. Because like, there's nothing worse than, you know, showing up to a thing and having no one being enthusiastic about it. I've been to a few of the Soundrink VIP experiences and it's been awesome. I saw uh, an acoustic thing with, uh, I can't remember who it was, but I've seen a few of them and they run seamlessly. It's amazing because the people that are, are coming to the show are super enthusiastic about it and you get a really, really intimate experience. Like, you know, if you want to have coffee with your favorite band member, like, boom, that's probably an experience. Or you want to see a Q&A and not just like a, you know, really, really lame five minute thing. It's like, no, we're going to hang out for an hour and really get into whatever questions you may have. Soundrink.com is the place to go to check out all of the tours they have going on right now and all the VIP ticket experiences that you could possibly shake a stick at. I love Soundrink. Pro people, they know what they're doing, and you need to go to soundrank.com, okay? Find your favorite tour and sign up, buy those tickets, and get the awesome experience that you deserve, okay? Thank you, Soundrank. And so when you started to, you know, do, because, you know, when you were doing music videos, you obviously, like you said, were doing, you know, commercial work and, you know, you were clearly always incubating these ideas about films and stuff like that. So when you started to do the the commercial work, um, you know, a lot of people that, don't pay attention to the fact that so many of their favorite directors, you know, got their, you know, cut their teeth, um, their favorite film directors, I should say, cut their teeth in, you know, doing commercial work because clearly it's a, it's a huge flex and there's so many different muscles that you're using in both. Um, was it a weird world for you to kind of like step into the commercial world and kind of be like, Oh wow. Like this is, um, you know, very different than, (laughs) you know, the music video world or whatever. Oh yeah, it was exciting as hell because I started the other way around. I started doing music videos and then I got into commercials. And that was a pretty big jump for me because I was like, holy crap, I can actually make a living doing what I love. And I have all these music videos that I've done 
and I ended up, and I was an editor, and I was becoming what would be a, a you know called the director. Um, so it was it was really really cool, but definitely the biggest thing for me was constantly hearing, no, you can't do that. Oh my God, no, like, you can't do that. Like I, I worked with this, the first company I got signed to production company was a company in Boston called Red Tree Productions. Really great people. I still um, work with uh, a few of the executive producers today. Um, but they've kind of changed in their structure when they're a different company now. But uh, I worked with, with them and, and they constantly would tell me, oh no, you can't do that. Oh no, 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 you can't do that. Don't, you don't use the word filmmaker. Don't say filmmaker. I'm like, what? Like you need to learn all this stuff because filmmaker in commercial world sometimes is looked at as um, being difficult or attached to their work. Um, do you know what I mean? It's like it's like a dirty word. Filmmaker is almost like a dirty word. Right. It, you're too. Pre- it, it, yeah. You're too precious. Like, you're oh, you're yeah. too precious, or you're you you know oh they're going to be difficult to deal with a prima donna or like they're too attached to the work because in commercial work you are hired to do work. You are hired for either your ability to execute a project or your your you, whatever your craft is. Let it be directing, you know, or DP or a gaffer or a producer. You bring something to the table that someone else can do, but you do better or you do it different. Um, or they just like working with you and you know, you can make a living doing it. Um, it's way more structured. It's, but what's interesting is when I started doing music videos, um, I was dealing with kind of smaller labels and whatnot, but still, um, you know, having a good reputation, you know, a, a good camaraderie between and a good collaboration with those labels because a lot of those people at those labels were just like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation had slowly become, um, you know, the hardcore punk rock metal kids that, you know, moved into doing record labels and got into bigger record labels and started having positions in these record labels. But when, you know, I started doing uh, commercials, um, it was, I didn't know anybody and I had to learn how to just the proper etiquette and, 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 and how to work with an agency and how to work with a brand and what you can say, what you can't say, how you should talk on a call. All these things are things that I didn't really know and I had to learn them. But the interesting thing is now that I did that and I have all that commercial experience and I still do today. I just, I just did two commercials in the past two weeks. Um, and I did a political campaign, um, edited a, a political campaign for a New Hampshire candidate. Um, it, I learned, all that structure and the way the agencies work and brands work and how you talk, it's the same thing in the film industry, like the TV networks. It's the same thing. Hmm. It's very corporate. It's very structured. Um, there's a hierarchy. Um, you know, you, you, you don't overstep, you don't step out of your you know, lane when talking to certain people. It's like you do do. It's very, very, very similar to, um, you know, the, the commercial world. So it's, it's a, I kind of look at it as like everything I've learned has been, you know, a, a, a step to get me to the new place accidentally. And everything I've learned along the way um, has kind of helped me where I am now. Sure. Um, and I do, and honestly, I don't think I could do what I do now um, without the experiences that I've had um, in hardcore punk rock and doing music videos um, and commercials to now trying to take a new leap into doing, you know, network TV stuff and docu-series and feature film stuff. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's all building, it's all building blocks. Yeah. It's building blocks. And, but I will say that like, 
one of my focus has been as I like the idea of having somewhat control or at least control over things that I want. So I own a small post facility. So, you know, I have like three edit bays. Um, I have a, a colorist and then I have a mixing guy and then I have, you know, a small uh, edit bay and then I have a big edit bay. So, you know, I'll direct stuff and for a bigger company that I, I get rep from a lot, a couple of different ones I work with, um, or I'll, do projects through my production company that maybe is, um, maybe a little more, um, needs a little more attention to detail or like it has a special, is, is something specialized. I don't know. Like I, I kind of call my, my business more of a boutique, <laughs> um, production company. It's more focused on, um, certain style of filmmaking. And then when somebody wants something that way, I do it. Otherwise I do, you know, anything within reason. Um, I do have some things, companies I will not work with, um, just cause I don't like the, who they are, or what they do. And, um, um, but you know, and that comes from my background of, you know, having a little bit, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, looking at what, what I feel is right and wrong. You know? Yeah, no, no, for sure. For sure. It makes total sense. And like, like you said, I think the, the main, the main theme that most people have when they come out of the subculture that we do is this like, you know, have some modicum of control, you know, like yeah. it's, you know, it doesn't need to be like, you know, fully autonomous. I mean, you know, you, you clearly have some area of your life where it is that way with the, you know, the, the production or the edit base that you're talking about. But then, mm-hmm. you know, there's an element of just like, well, yeah, let me do my thing over here. And like, let me control this and make these decisions. And, you know, like that's, that's what everybody not, and not everybody wants that. You know, some people are just like, yeah, I just want to show up in a place and have someone tell me what to do. It's like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fine. I, I've never been able to be that guy. Like I just, I can't do that. Um, I have to have some freedom and some control. And um, sometimes it's, you know, it's not been um, a good decision, um, you know, at times, but, um, you know, I think at least I, at least I can do what I want, you yeah. know, and, um, and I can, uh, I stand up for when I, I do things, you know, when I'm wrong. You know, I, I, the other thing I can say is too, is like, you know, being the, the hardcore punk rock scene is very similar to the, the, the independent film world. It's very similar. Um, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of people, you know, wanting to say something or do something. And, you know, a lot of people like to, you know, help each other out and work together. And, and it's, it, there's a lot of parallels. Um, and you gotta get, you gotta get people to show up at a place to watch the thing. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah you gotta, you gotta have some more of a community, you yeah. know? And, um, I'm and what I love doing, like one of the things I love doing is, bringing the people that I've been friends with for so long and, you know, hold dear to me and I bring them into my world. Like I have like so many of these people that worked on this film have been friends of mine for many years. Like we just talked about earlier, like Century Media Abacus and like, uh, uh, Jay reason. Uh, yep. he's Jay is one of my best and closest friends. And, you know, Jay played in, you know, band called voice of reason. And then, um, after voice of reason, it was, um, why am I drawing a blank? The distance, um, the distance, right. Yeah, yeah. The distance now was abacus. And then, you know, Jay has, he was the first person I told when I was doing this movie and Jay came on and he said, I want to help, man. I was like, well, I don't want you. What do you want to do? And he's like, I just want to do something, man. Let's just do it. I'll help you out. And I was like, okay, what can you do? And he's like, I'll do graphics and I'll, I'll handle all the graphics and the web. And I was like, sweet. And, you know, I don't think I could have done, you know, a lot of the things I did, um, without my buddy Jay. And like, then I brought my, in, 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 I, I get to share all these experiences. I go with people like him or like my friend, Rick, 
um, you know, who came in, Rick Frisella, it was, it was a, it was a copywriter and he's just a friend of mine, but he's from the commercial world. And he was like, I love what you're doing. He's like, this, can I help? Can I help out at all? And he's like, he's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I said, you know, come on in. He's my copywriter. So he handled all of anything that was words, letters, text, anything. He was the guy that had passed through first. Um, and you know, it, it's, I surround myself with people that I trust and I like, and if I, if they don't know how to do something, but we're friends and we like working together, I say, well, let's figure out how you can. And cause it's just much better being around people you like totally. and you can trust because there's so much trash and shitheads and just, yeah. You don't assholes want, in this world these days, man. Totally. Yeah. You want to surround yourself with people who, yeah, you, you, you trust to do the work that they do and then they deliver it and you're just like, this is great. It works out perfectly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the, you know, putting together the documentary and, you know, clearly, uh, you know, showing it in a bunch of different places and, you know, having different people react, um, to the film and stuff like that. I'm sure there, you know, were moments in your head where it was like, oh, like this feels real in the sense of, oh, wow, like, you know, people are going to watch this that, you know, maybe have no attachment to Agnostic Front um, or, you know, people that maybe have a limited attachment to it, but now have a deeper understanding after they've watched the film. You know, do you have like, you know, an anecdotal moment or two where it was like, oh, wow, this this felt real? Or it could be that solitary time that you were, you know, slaving, you know, 19 hour days trying to get the film finished for Showtime or whatever. I can tell you, I know three specific instances that were uh, very pivotal for me in making this film. Um, I would have to say the first big one was when I showed Roger the film for the first time. Because I've said this before, I don't know if you know it or not, some people don't, but um, I I took two years to make this movie. Um, I filmed it in about um, uh, a year and a half, and I cut it in about a year a little over a year. Um, and, um, that's really quick for making a film. Um, it's right on spec with like, you know, you know, TV documentary stuff. They think that's end up, you know, happening a lot. Um, when I played it for Roger, I didn't let him see anything, not one piece of footage until the film was done. And that was a really, really hard thing for him. Um, I have a, I've told the story a couple of times, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you real fast. he, um, this is because there's importance to this. He, he was hounding me constantly and he was getting really upset at one point because I wouldn't show him anything and he was getting really uncomfortable. And he, I think his paranoia started kicking. He's like, why is he not showing me something? What's he done? You know, what's he doing? Even though we're friends, he was concerned because he gave me a lot of control. Um, you know, he basically <laughs> signed a release form that he has no say in the movie. Um, and I can do anything I want, whether he likes it or not. And I think that's a hard thing for, a guy like Roger Swallow, but it's also a hard for, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Would yeah, you do it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a, totally. Yeah. So, um, I remember I, I, he was hounding me left and right and I called him and I said, all right, man, film's done. I'm ready for you to see it. He goes, really? Okay, great. All right, let me call you right back. And I was like, okay. He calls me back like 15 minutes later. He says, all right, man. So I'll see you at nine. I was like, nine what? He goes, I'll be in there in the morning. Like, what are you talking about? Roger? Now, Roger lives in Arizona. I live yeah. in Boston. Yep. And I said, what are you talking about, Roger? He says, I'll, I'll be there at the airport at 9 a.m. I'm taking a red eye. I'm leaving tonight. I'm like, Roger, are you kidding me, right? He goes, no, no, no. I'll see you in the morning, 9 a.m. United, pick me up. I'm like, holy shit. Okay, it's getting real now. I'm like, well, then I started figuring, like, what is he, what if he doesn't like it? I'm like going to be in a trapped in a room with him. 
holy shit. Um, so he came out and he walked in and, and uh, he, he said, let's, let me see this movie. And um, I said, well, let's go get some breakfast, man. It's 9 a.m. You just got in. He goes, no, now I need to see it right now, Ian. I'm like, Roger, I haven't even turned on the system yet. He goes, well, I'll wait. I was like, oh my God, this guy's crazy. <laughs> totally. It's 9 a.m. This is literally 9 a.m. Yeah, can we, can we like ease into this, dude? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and I said, he goes, and he kept on saying, is the computer on yet? I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, okay. I go, I'll tell you what, give me a hug, man. I said, he's like, all right. And I said, because that might be the last one. I was like, because after you see this, I don't know what you're going to, where we're going to be. And he's like, his face went white. And he was like, what are you talking about, man? I was like, I don't know, Roger. I don't, I'm kind of freaked out right now. You flew out. You want to see this movie? Like, what do you think's going on here? You know? And, um, we sat down and watched it. I sat in the room with him. It was me, him and my producer, Tony, co-producer. And, uh, Roger didn't say anything the whole movie. And then when the movie ended, he watched all of the, the credits and didn't say anything. And when it was done, he just stared looking at the screen and I looked at him and he had tears coming down his face. And I said, what do you think? And he goes, don't change anything. And he got up and walked out and that was it. And that was a really big moment for me as a filmmaker and as someone that comes from this type of music. It was, I mean, just thinking about today, remembering exactly how it happened. It gives me chills. Yeah, that's huge. Um, that was that. And then, I don't know, the third one I won't go into, but the, the, the second one, because it's too long a story, but the second one was, since you've seen the movie, you know that Roger's mother and how much she went through um, and, and how tough it was for them, for Roger's kids. And, you know, she came over not speaking English, three kids, you know, no money, no job. I mean, living in a refugee camp, I mean, just crazy stuff. Like, you know, like really, really tough. Um, you know, and she had it really hard, really rough, um, as it says, you know, talks about in the movie. Um, it was really important for me, uh, for Roger's mother to see this movie. Um, I, we were trying to find out a time and a place to do it. And we got asked to be in the Florida film festival, which is a really, really big festival, really cool festival. And I told them, um, that, I really wanted Roger's mother to see the film and we wanted to bring her up and they are such an amazing festival that they love the idea so much that they, they put her up and Roger's family up and they had them all come up from Southern Florida and it was a sold out venue. It was enormous. It was 400 seat room. Um, and it was packed, but it was all lazy boy chairs, you know, like the theaters that have like the reclining chairs. Absolutely. It was, it was just enormous. And I got her, you know, Roger came because that's the thing is Roger flew down, uh, his brother, his cousins. Um, it was, it was like his uncle, there was like 20 people in this row of just extended Moret family. It was just unbelievable. I put Roger's mother right in the middle of the theater. And, um, I went on the end of the theater, the end of that row. And I just sat, there was no seat. So I had to sit on the floor, um, watching and I wasn't watching the movie. I would just watch other people. And I watched her. And I just watched her almost the entire hour and a half. Just because it was so important to me. Because if she didn't like something, it was really going to affect me. Because I tried my best to just, you know, tell that family story. And I didn't know if you know, something was wrong or whatnot. And after the film, she um, didn't say anything to me. And I was really uncomfortable. I'm like, man shit, you know, I'm going to have, this woman's going to be really upset and just, I, mean, I don't want to deal with it. And, um, 
later on, she said, you know, after she came up to me and she just, you know, said, give me a hug. And she said, yeah, it was nice. And, and then I was like, oh man, she hates it. So the next morning I got in my cab and I went to the airport and I'm waiting, getting out of my cab. And all of a sudden this car drives up and it's Roger's brother and his cousin. And they jumped out and opened the door and his mother gets out and they hold the door for it. And by herself, she walks over. She's a small little lady. She comes over and she just comes up to me and she grabs each arm by the forearm. She holds on to me real tight and she just looks me straight in the eye and she says, thank you. And she just had tears in her eyes and she pulled me and held me a hug for like a good 30 seconds, like uncomfortably long. And, um, she, I heard her say again, thank you. And it, it, to this day, it makes me like, just gives me like goosebumps because she couldn't say it that night. She didn't say great movie. She didn't say like, Oh, it was great. She just said, thank you. As I think she wanted, she, it's, you know, she had part of her family story told she's not young. She's in her like mid late seventies. Um, you know, and, and I'm pretty honored to be able to have that with her. Any other person I do a film on is just be able to tell their story and have them, you know, feel good about it or affected in a positive manner, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that that's beautiful. Cause it, yeah, you, you not only encapsulated, uh, you know, a piece of her journey that was foundational obviously to her son, but then, you know, just that, just the encapsulation of that is, um, you know, you, you did it respect without, um, you know, pulling any punches. You showed exactly what it was that the story was. Yeah. And I think the only other time that really, really, really hit me, um, it was when we screened Atlanta and it was the first time that Roger, Vinny, the whole band, the Dropkicks guy, they're on tour of the Dropkicks. We did a screening in Atlanta and it was the first time that Roger and the whole band had seen the film together. And I made Roger and Vinny sit together, which they were re- Roger was really pissed about. It was just, he's like, why don't I have to sit next to Vinny? I'm like, sit next to Vinny. You're going to I want to watch the two. You watch the movie together. And, uh, they watched the movie together and then we did a question and answer afterwards, and it was a packed house. I think it was about you know three hundred and something people there. And um, first question, first question, uh, moderator said, "Roger, you know, so you know, you're sitting in a movie theater, you're watching the movie with a guy that made the movie, and the guy, the other guy, the movie's about. You know, how's this feel?" And Roger sat there a second, and then I noticed something on his face, and I said, "Oh my god!" And Roger broke down. It was really, really, really impressive. Like it was something that affected me and the entire audience because Roger couldn't speak. He, he started like just saying how much this, like, you know, it's really hard to, you know, go through what I've gone through in life and then to watch it and then to watch it with people that I care about. And then he just broke down and he said, you know, my daughter and just watching my daughter and, and, you know, everybody in the audience, I could see at least like three fully tattooed face dudes in the front row having tears coming down their face. <laughs> right. Right. And, and then I, and then Roger's trying to talk and I grab the mic and I, I kind of just start taking the heat off him a little bit and start talking about something. And I, I hear Vinny lean over and grab him by the arm. And he said, I love you, brother. It's all right. I got you, brother. And I was like, wow, like these guys are real. It's like, it's it's like, like it's this like, happened. Sh- this happened. Like, holy shit, man. And what that did is a guy in the back of the audience stood up and he, while I'm talking and he goes, it's all right, Roger, we love you, brother. And then another dude goes, yeah, Roger, it's good, man. You're good, bro. 
And then another guy said something. And then this woman said something. And it was almost like, and then it's slow clapping. And the whole place started clapping. And it was just slow build. And I think it was this moment of just Roger just feeling like, it was almost like he was getting put on everyone's shoulders and carried around the room. Sure. And, and it was just really, really, really beautiful to watch and witness and be around. And I'm like, wow, everybody in this room was feeling the same thing. And it's just about hardcore punk rock. Who would have known? That's you know? No, that's a, that's a beautiful experience. And I, I don't think there's a better button on the end of that interview. So thank yeah. you. Thank you so much, Ian. This is, um, yeah. I don't know, exceeded my expectations. Not like I expected you to suck, but you, you, you brought it. It was great. Thank you, man. Thank you. But thank you for having me very much, man. Of and course. congratulations on everything you're doing. All right. That was Ian. Thank you very much, Ian. I really appreciate you coming on the show and being so open and honest and just just laying it all out there. I love when people come ready to have these sort of conversations because, you know, sometimes people uh, are a little guarded and I get it. Not everybody needs to be this, you know, complete open book like, uh, you know, myself or other people that come on the show. And so anytime a person is ready and willing to do that, I, I just love it that much more. So next week is a little TBD. I, it's either going to be one of two episodes, so I'm not going to reveal anything right now. And that's, you're just going to have to deal with that. Okay. Cause it's either going to be, um, yeah, one of two episodes. That's all I'm going to say. And uh, like I always encourage you, please be safe, everybody. And please don't forget about Sonos. Dive into their website, Sonos.com. Find the best speakers around for all of the gifts on your holiday list. You can blow your mom or dad's mind if you are hooking them up with a Sonos system and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to set this up. Boom. 10 minutes. They're up and running. Got to connect to their TV. Got to connect to their phones. It's the best. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. And as always, thank you so much, Sonos. Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you new insight into the magical art of songwriting as told by some of the best in the business and also the pioneers and the up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central, and join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.